ahead and turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this evening. John chapter 1. Um, Merry Christmas to all of you. I keep on finding that, like, have we said Merry Christmas already, this gathering? I don't know that we have. So, like, you know that, like, when I say Merry Christmas, you have, you have to say it back. So it's like, Merry Christmas. Okay, just got to coach you guys just a little bit on that. If this is what the night's going to be like. See, here's the thing. Like, if I don't get, re- if I don't get response from you, then I just turn up the, the notch. I, 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 I turn the notches up, okay? It's like, it's like if, I'm, if I'm at a 10, I'm going to go one more because it's, it's one louder. I'm going to go to 11 if I don't get, like, a re- thank you. See, that's what, I, that's what I'm talking about right there. That's what I, that's what I need. Uh, go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. That's where we're going to be. We are in a uh, series um, for this Advent season that we're calling The God Who Comes. The God Who Comes. And what we're doing is we're working our way through uh, the first chapter of the book of John. Um, if you are unfamiliar with the, with the scriptures, uh, there are four biographies about the person of Jesus in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I like to think of these almost as like ancient documentaries. They document the life of Jesus. What he did when he was here, what he said, and, and all of that. And so we're just looking at the first 18 verses verses of the first chapter of the book of John in order to do um, kind of a deep dive into the nature of the kind of God who would come, the kind of God who would actually come to get near us. Um, There is no other story in all of human history about a God who comes to his creation to become part of his creation. It doesn't exist. And uh, so it's just this really astounding thing. And I just feel like John is so captured in this first chapter, um, the nature of that kind of God and really the meaning behind Christmas as well. So would you guys all stand together? We're gonna honor the scriptures as we read from them uh, this evening. John chapter one, and let's look down at verse six. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. You can go ahead and be seated. Every person and every generation runs the risk of missing Jesus. It's true. Every person and every generation runs the risk of thinking that they know what Jesus should be like or thinking that they know who Jesus should be, but actually missing out altogether on the real meaning of Christmas, the real meaning of Jesus, uh, God with us. I want you to imagine this, and maybe you need to close your eyes to do so, but I want you to imagine that you're carrying a huge box. This is a large, think of it like a moving box. You have this large box, and it's so large that it's taking all of your arm capacity to, to, keep, it, uh, to keep it up. And you're holding this box, and it's full of junk. And then imagine that I come to you, and I have a box of the same size. And this box is not full of junk, but it's full of the thing that you want most. And I say, 
okay, I want to give you this box, but you're like, well, my, my arms are a little bit full right now. I, 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 let me, okay, maybe if I just move to this side and I, maybe I can get, no, I can't get my arm around it that way. Um, okay, could you put it on top of this box? Well, okay, no, I can't quite take that. See, in order for you to receive the box that I have, you have to let go of the box that you're carrying. You have to create capacity in your arms to actually take hold of the thing that I'm offering to you. This is exactly what is happening in this passage before us. See, um, John, John the Baptist, who this passage is referring to, came to remove what Israel carried so that they could receive Jesus, the gift. And, And the fascinating part of this passage is that what John came to get Israel to drop is the very same thing that every single person who has ever lived must drop if they're going to receive the king, if they're going to receive Jesus. Uh, I just have a a really simple message tonight, just three points. If you're taking notes, write these three points down. If you're not taking notes, write these three points down. Uh, The three points are these. Who is John? Who is John the Baptist? Why do we need John? And how we can heed John. Who is John? Why we need John? And how we can heed John. John. So first, who is John? Well, look back down at your Bibles. Verse six says this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. Now pause for a moment right there. If you were here last week, you would remember we addressed the first five verses of chapter one. And in the first five verses of chapter one, we learned that Jesus is this light. He's this illuminating factor that comes into the world and he gives light to all mankind. And it says in that scripture that that light that he brings is life. So in the same way that our sun causes all matter to grow, to be able to create um, sugars and starches so that the energy that it gets from the sun, it can give to whatever eats those different plants or animals, um, is this, it's the same for, for Jesus. He becomes the thing that causes us to really live, the thing that causes us to really exist. And, and so it, it, he, he is the light. So what we read here is that John came as a witness to testify concerning that light or concerning Jesus, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Now, the author John, so we got a couple Johns going on here, so we'll get there in just a second. Um, we have the author John switching gears a little bit. He's established that Jesus is the creative factor. He's the beginning of the cosmos. Jesus is the very expression of God. He reveals the Father. He's the definition of God. He's the logos. He's the one who sets the definitions in life. He determines the reason behind all of creation, all of the world that we're seeing. But then he launches right after that into talking about this guy named John. And we should be going like, who is John? Why? You went from Jesus, the logos, to John? Is, is, is the author John speaking about himself? Well, no. John is referring to John the Baptist, who is the cousin of Jesus, who was born around the same time as Jesus. Now, it could be easy to say, especially if you're familiar with church or you're familiar with the scriptures, it could be easy to say, oh yeah, I know who John is. Yeah, he baptized some people. He seemed to be a little bit funny. He like wore you know, that camel hair vest and he ate bugs and, and whatever else. But um, familiarity can glaze over the nuances of the reason for John the reason why John had to come. See, what, it, what does it say here? Verse six, look again. There was a man sent from God. So John isn't just this random character. He actually is on a mission. He's sent from God. Uh, he, he, we have to remember, 
that at this time period, the first century uh, in Israel, Israel hadn't heard from God in over 400 years. So there's no prophecy, there's no prophet standing up, hey, I've heard from God, here's what he wants for our nation, hey, I've heard from God, here's, you know, we should go in this direction or do this or that. They, they haven't heard from God in 400 years, and according to Proverbs chapter 28, without any prophetic vision, people perish. If you don't have a prophetic word over your life, you need to come forward for prayer tonight and receive a prophetic word for your life, because you will perish without a prophetic word. It says it in Proverbs 28. And so these people, they don't have a prophetic word over their, over their nation. They're like living off of the fumes of what happened 400 years ago. And they haven't heard from God. And so people are longing. Could there be anybody who could hear from God on our behalf? Now, not, not to mention that, not only that is going on, but Rome has ruled for 100 years in, the, in, in Jerusalem, in Israel. And things had gotten progressively worse for the Jews. So imagine... It keeps on looking more and more like exile, more rights being removed, uh, more privileges flying out the window if you're a Jew, without actually being removed from their land. So I, I, you have to imagine like the tension that would be in your hearts if you lived here and we were occupied by another government that was removing our rights. All of the smells, all of the sights of home without any of the security. It would almost be worse than being taken to another place, right? So obviously, on the forefronts of everyone's minds are one, have we been abandoned by God, and two, look at the immediate physical earthly rulership issues. Look at the, the political landscape. Has it ever been worse for Israel? But, but notice, and, and we're going to unpack this a little bit, John's message isn't like, okay, so we need to take up arms, or we need to protest the power, we're going to have a sit-in, we're going to organize ourselves, we're going to do this or that. No, those weren't Jesus' methods. They're not John's methods. Instead, here's what John says in Luke chapter three. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all of the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is a bit strange for a bunch of different reasons, let alone the fact that most people probably didn't feel that baptism is gonna solve the Roman occupation. They're like, baptism of repentance? Uh, I don't need to repent. The Romans need to repent. But this is also strange because the practice of baptism or the practice of washing was primarily used for going to the temple. So Jews would wash themselves. They would, they would go in. If they were really rich, they would have them in their own homes. And I've actually been to Israel and seen one of these in an ancient home. Uh, but they would have these things called mikvahs. And you'd go into the mikvah and you would dip yourself and then you would get out of the mikvah and then you were cleansed. You were able to go into the temple. And so really what baptism was for the Jews was it was a preparation of body and spirit to be in the presence of God. It's a preparation of body and spirit to be in the presence of God. Now, the only other time that baptism was used was for Gentiles. If a Gentile or if a Greek, a non-Jew, wanted to become a Jew, they wanted to repent, <laughs> they wanted to change their ways, they wanted to adopt kosher, they wanted to live by the, the 613 commandments that are in Leviticus, um, then they would get baptized. In other words, I'm renouncing my old way of life, I'm leaving that old way of life, and I'm entering into a whole New life. So think about what John is saying when he comes to Israel under this political tension and he preaches a baptism of repentance. He's saying, you need to prepare for his presence. He's been gone, but he's coming. He's been gone, but pre get prepared. But secondly, what he's saying is, you're not really Jewish. <laughs> you're not really Jewish. You have failed the covenant, and so you need to repent. 
Change your hearts. Prepare yourselves because Christ is coming. And so all of these people begin to repent and they begin preparing their hearts, their integrity, their spirit to host God's presence, to become people of his presence. Now, What's interesting to me is what all of this represents. Now, if you're an astute Bible student, you would maybe recognize this, um, but I had to have a couple professors basically just be like, hey, look, this is here. Um, This is some amazing stuff is represented by John, primarily this, New Exodus. Remember the story of Israel coming out of Egypt. It was a very similar political uh, you know, circumstance when they were in Egypt, except they weren't in their homeland. So they're in Egypt, they're slaves, they haven't heard from God, it's been many years, um, and they're just probably wondering, maybe we've been abandoned. We haven't heard from God. Uh, who knows what's gonna happen to us? Is he even there? And what happens is God raises up a man, or maybe you could say God sends a man, interesting. He sends a man named Moses. Moses comes to them, and he takes them Where? to the wilderness, right? And the whole point of taking them to the wilderness was so that God's people could worship him. That was the point of Israel coming into the wilderness, so that they could worship him. Um, Another goal was so that Israel could become a nation of priests. Here's Exodus 19, verse six. You yourselves, this is God speaking, you, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites, God speaking to Moses in that uh, scene there. God originally wanted a nation full of priests, not a nation who had priests. Do you get the distinction? God didn't want to create a nation and say, okay, this group right here, because you're born to these people, you're priests. In the beginning, he wanted a nation of priests, a whole host of people who were people of his presence, who would meet with him and go and communicate with him. Um, now, if you remember the story, God actually invites, there's this moment in the story where God invites all of Israel to come up into his presence. Just the, in the same way Moses has been spending time in his presence, God invites all of Israel, come up into my presence so that you will be a nation of priests to me. It's actually right after that passage that we just read. And if you remember the story, the people, they stay at a distance and they would prefer to stay safe and they say, no, Moses, you go up. And instead of becoming a nation of priests, they become a nation with priests. Now, I want you to, with that in mind, I want you to look at the language that describes John the Baptist's ministry that comes from Matthew chapter three, right here. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness, interesting, of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So there's a man John, in the wilderness, that should, that's like a hyperlink. That's like a link that you click on in an email. It just takes you to a whole other universe. It should just link you right to what? Oh, Exodus. There's a man in the wilderness, and what is he doing? He is preparing a way. Whose way? The way of God. For people to walk down the way of God. Well, that's exactly what happened to Israel when they were in the wilderness. There was a man sent from God who brought Israel into the wilderness to show them a new way. And notice, this is just beautiful, notice what John is doing. What is he doing? He's baptizing. Well, where is he baptizing? Matthew 3, 5 through 6 says this. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. 
Wasn't that the same river that Israel crossed in the Exodus right before they entered the promised land? Are you getting it? Is this on purpose? I I think so. What is going on? Well, John is leading a new Exodus through the river Jordan. It's 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 not a physical Exodus. It's a spiritual Exodus that is preparing people for the promised land, for the kingdom of God, for the presence of God. And just like Israel, every person must pass through the waters to get to the kingdom, to get to the promised land. We're gonna do that this evening. Tonight is your chance. Tonight is your opportunity to enter into this ancient uh, act that has been happening for thousands of years. Followers of Jesus saying, I'm done with my old country. I'm done with my old life. I'm done with my old way about things. And I'm entering into your way of things, Lord, into your promised land. Now, now, why does John matter? Secondly, why, why John? Why John? Well, look down at your Bibles, verse nine. It says this. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So, in, in English, <laughs> Jesus comes into the world. Nobody recognizes him for who he really is. So, verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. See, John was sent ahead of Jesus to hopefully do his his best to prepare Israel to recognize their king. A, a, A metaphor, if you will. Jesus was bringing a meal that Israel didn't have an appetite for, and so John was the appetizer. Now, I don't know about you, but I love good food. Um, it's like a passion of my life. I love food. I, whenever I hang out with Jake and we eat together, he's like, it's like every bite, I just have some kind of exclamation. He's like, dude, there's nobody who eats food this way. You do, I, I just love food, right? And uh, this is a pretty big change for me because back when I was in high school, I remember thinking to myself, like, $2 on a burrito at Taco Bell seems a little steep. I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip lunch for the day. So, like, this is, I don't know what exactly changed, but now I'm like, do I have money in the count? Yeah, we're going to dinner then. I love going out to uh, restaurants. You know how that, that, that passage that says, you know, wherever your uh, treasure is, there your heart will be? Well, like, my heart is with chefs, okay? So, like, I love chefs. I love restaurants. That's where my heart is. I'm convicted by the passage. You should be too, okay? Equal playing field. Now, um, my wife and I, when we, uh, we lived downtown Portland for the first few years of our uh, marriage, and we lived in this apartment building, and we had this uh, really cute young family move in. Uh, probably like the first year that we were there, second year or something like that. And um, the husband was a chef. And he was, a, uh, he was from the Basque region in Spain. I don't know, anybody know where the Basque region is? Okay, some woos, okay, all right. Actually, I know there's a a family that goes to the church who's from uh, the Basque area. But anyway, he's from the Basque area. Like all of like, if you if you ever are like go out and you eat Spanish tapas, that's the region that that whole food is inspired from. Okay, so like great food region. So he comes and they are like, hey, we should do dinner sometime. I'm thinking, your house, not ours. So he's like, he's like, yeah, I'll make a paella. I'm like, this is great. Are you kidding me? This Spanish guy is going to make us a paella. This is awesome. So we, uh, so we go up to their apartment, and we have this, we're out on their balcony. It's like a summer night. You probably remember it when he made the paella. It's like clams in it. It's just beautiful. And he has like sparkling water. I'm like, dude, you're speaking my language. It is just like so awesome. 
finer things of life. And um, I look over, and he has a son. He has this little son named Jordy. He's really cute. And at the time, Jordy was probably like one or two. And Jordy is loving his life, and he's eating pea paste. It's like peas ground up, and he has pea paste all over his face. He's just eating peas. And I'm looking at the paella. I'm looking at him, and I realize, I feel bad for him, but I realize something. <laughs> he wouldn't like it. He wouldn't like it. Even if he had to eat it, he wouldn't like it because he doesn't have the appetite for it. He doesn't have the taste developed for it. Now, let me just ask you, what is obje objectively better, paella or pea paste? The paella, right? He just doesn't know it yet. He just didn't know it yet. John was sent to develop an appetite for the meal that Jesus was serving up. They, 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 they hadn't had it yet, they didn't know that they wanted it yet, but John was the appetizer to the meal, Jesus. And the reason why they needed an appetizer was this. See, because of the Roman occupation, because of the taxes increasing, some, some, some estimates are like, it's like 70% tax to a, to a country you don't belong to. How do you like that, Americans? It's just horrible. The checkpoints, the injustice, the money extortion, because of all of that, there were four dominant camps of thinking, of appetites, in the first century. And these four camps represent the four appetites of Israel as a people. I think we have them up here. The Essenes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Zealots. These are the four different groups that, that John has to, is, is coming in to try to give them an appetizing taste to want Jesus instead of what they wanted. See, the Essenes, they were separatists. So um, they kind of looked like Christians did back in like, you know, the 70s. Like, we just need to get, who cares? Culture is going to hell in a handbasket. We need to get out of culture. And they're actually, the Essenes are the ones who ended up developing the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's, that's the, the group of people who, when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was their writings. They went and they lived in caves outside of Jerusalem, and they spent all of their time dedicating themselves to reading of the scriptures. And they believed that they must, in order to get Messiah to come, they had to keep themselves completely pure before God. Incredibly religious. But then you have the Pharisees. Now, this is, you've probably heard of the Pharisees before. The Pharisees were a group that believed that if all of Israel, if every single Israelite could keep Torah, could keep the law for just one day, then Messiah would come. They thought, okay, we have these laws, and we need the Messiah, obviously. If we can just do all of the laws, if, if we can just get everybody on the same page. Do you ever see those people, like, politically? They're like, everybody's fighting. Can we just all get on the same page? That's the Pharisees. They're like, let's just get all, everybody on the same page, and if we can do that, then what we can do is we can get everybody to live by Torah for just a day. That's all it's going to take, just one day. Get that bacon out of your hands. Just, just, just for one day. And then Messiah would come. That was their appetite. Then you have the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees are compromised Jews. The Sadducees were willing to let slide their theology in order to be more accepted in a Greek community. Because of social pressure, they developed their theology around it. And so the Sadducees had, were completely compromised. They're like, why are you guys taking this so seriously? Really, come on. The Greeks aren't so bad, they've got some good food, and they, and they have interesting shows, and then have you ever read any of their poetry? The philosophy is not too bad, and 
They're like, let's just become more Greek. I mean, that, that's an easy way out, right? And then you have the zealots, who are the complete opposite. The zealots, in fact, some of Jesus' disciples were zealots, part of the zealot uh, group. The zealots believed that the way, th- the way through the religious chaos of the first century was violence, an armed rebellion against Rome. Come to my door, and you're gonna meet a shotgun. That's the zealot. That's the zealot cause. So you have to imagine, like, this is, this is the world that Jesus is entering into. This is the world that John is trying to, like, stir up an appetite for the kingdom of heaven with. You have violence. You have compromise. You have self-righteousness, and you have separatism. And so you have to imagine what Israel wanted was political reform. Down with Rome. Yahweh, can you see our struggle? We need physical deliverance. The people were looking for a political exodus, but what John was preparing was an internal heart exodus. Luke gives us uh, the vision statement for John's mission in in Luke chapter one. This is the vision statement for John the Baptist. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Let's read that together. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John's, you gotta just like, it's just like, put on your like first century imagination. Like you have to imagine he's entering this crazy political circumstance and he's like, I have two missions. Next slide. These are the two missions. I wanna turn hearts of parents toward children. You're like, okay, and? Um, and I want to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of righteous. See, it's, it, righteousness. It's very wise to be righteous, and I want people to see that wisdom. You're like, and the Romans? Now, why those two things? Why those two things? How, how does this appetize people's palates for Jesus? Why those two things? Firstly, why, why turn hearts of parents toward children? Because... I don't know, how many parents are in the room? Just like, raise your hand real fast. Parents in the room. First of all, parents night out, coming up soon. Uh, Quick plug. You're welcome, Lexi. So, I'm under the impression that parents' hearts are already turned toward their children. Like, okay, I don't think I've said this publicly. My wife's pregnant. Yeah. So, so we're, we're having a, a baby. And I, like, I will be like driving down the street and I will just be thinking about that baby. Like, I, di- I didn't even want a baby. And next thing you know, we're having a baby, so now you have to want a baby. But then you're like, no, I actually want a baby. I'm like, I want a baby. I see like uh, Josh and Brand Cloud's kids and I'm like, I want, I want my baby. When is that baby coming? You know, it's like, oh. And I think about this baby all the time. I pray for this baby. I prophesy over this baby. I sit up late at night and I write things down like this, this child is gonna do this with their life and you know, all this stuff. Anyway, so my, my, I don't even have a baby yet and my heart is turned towards my child. So what do you mean that, that you need to turn the hearts of parents toward their children? What, what is that about? Well, I don't know about you, but um, whenever I, I look out around me, I see a lot of broken families. 
Um, and, and the first century wasn't much different than our culture today. Um, you see uh, parents who are distanced from their children. Maybe even some of you are here tonight, and you're like, I don't, I don't really even have a relationship with my mom or with my dad, um, or I didn't even know my dad growing up. Um, and, and we just see, like, in America, we just see, like, a, a mass, like, epidemic of fatherlessness. It's just everywhere. And it has seeped down into, like, every um, sector of culture. It affects everything. Uh, it, it, just last night, I was, um, do you ever just let the algorithm of YouTube just take you on a wild ride? <laughs> just, like, I went from, like, German Shepherd puppies <laughs> Seriously, I have a German Shepherd. I'm like, anytime I'm bummed, I'm like, I'm going to German Shepherd puppies. That's what I'm doing. Um, I went from like German Shepherd puppies. I went from that to uh, the, watching this video of this pastor who I, I had been impacted by his ministry years ago. And he is making a video about how um, him and his wife are getting a divorce and how certain people, I mean, this guy is famous. 10,000 person church making a YouTube video about how his wife and him are getting a divorce and how he's in a custody battle over his child and how people at the church are slandering him and he just wants to clear the record. And I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not I can be sentimental, but normally just about things that are make-believe. Normally things that are real, I'm like, that's just the way life is. But um, I see, I'm watching this and I'm like, I'm like sad. Because I'm like, not only is like this a guy who I, looked up to at some level, but, but also I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, like, they have one daughter. <laughs> like, her life is forever changed. Like, this guy's life, like, I'm thinking, I'm watching him watch I make this video, I'm like, his wife is not home. His daughter is not there. Like, that's, that's sad. That's heartbreaking. The, the reason why John the Baptist comes to turn the hearts of parents toward their children is because of the rebuilding of family is one of the ultimate goals of Jesus. He's been given the job. He's been given the job of reconciling lost sons and daughters to God, their Father. It says in Second Corinthians chapter five that he has he has reconciled us to the Father through His body, and that spiritual reality is meant to bleed into real families here on earth as well. That's why John the Baptist comes. He's like, there's a kingdom thing that's about to come. I, I know you don't have an appetite for it. I know you're just thinking about the Romans. I know that you're fractured into your four different camps, but what I want for you is I want you to see that what God is trying to develop is a kingdom family. It's not just like an ethnic group. It's a, it's a kingdom family. But, but also the second question that I have is, okay, so I, I kind of understand that, but why is the second mission statement of John to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of righteousness? Well, John came about to bring about a desire for the wisdom that comes from righteousness. In other words, think about this. I, I, like, to, I like to call this, it's, it's jealousy evangelism. It's like, do you see these righteous people right here? And I don't mean, like when we see righteous, we think like self-righteous or we think of, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who are pure in heart, who lay their lives down for their fellow friends and neighbors, who, who, who serve well and who are just, when you think about them, you're like, they are like Jesus. He's like, do you see the wisdom with which they live their lives? How they don't get torqued up about the things that the world gets torqued up about. Do you see the renewed way that they think about the world? He's like, do you see that wisdom? I want to make you jealous for that wisdom, but I have to tell you it comes from becoming righteous. You need to get baptized. <laughs> Come through the Jordan. The Hebrew word for wisdom is kokma. Can you say that with me? Kokma. 
And uh, Ray Ortland, um, a Hebrew scholar, he, he says this, wisdom is skill, expertise, competence that understands how life really works, how to achieve successful and even beautiful results. See, oftentimes the Hebrew notion of wisdom can be related to this idea of ruling well or, or your life taking the raw material that God has given you and you producing something beautiful with it. From the beginning of Genesis, God's vision for all humans is that they would rule well the creation that's entrusted to them. And, and make no mistake, you have creation entrusted to you. It could be a job, it could be a piece of property, it could be a child, it could be a person, it could be a team of people, it could be money in your bank account. And it, what your job is to do is to take the material that God has given you and to produce something beautiful with it, something kingdom with it. So next slide, here's what John is saying. What John is saying is that the only way to be fully what you were made to be, to rule well, Genesis 1 verse 26, is to be, it, the only way to be fully who you were, you were made to be is to rule well, and the only way to rule well is through wisdom. And the only way to wisdom is righteousness. Do you see what John is doing? I want you to be jealous. I want to create an appetite for righteousness because the one who's righteous, whose sandal I'm not even worthy to untie is coming, and he will baptize you in fire. He'll make you righteous. See, what this is, is it's a return to Eden. It's a return to life, hand in hand with your father, right standing with God, receiving wisdom and ruling well as a result. And this is exactly what Jesus comes to serve up. Do you see what he's cooking? Do you have an appetite for it? The renewal of families, a father who loves you. The wisdom of being righteous, thinking with a renewed mind. So lastly, how can we heed John? How can we heed John? There are two things that this Christmas must mean to every person. There are two things that Christmas has to mean to every person. The first is reconciliation with God our Father, and the second is repentance that leads to the wisdom of being righteous. That's what Christmas is actually about. So tonight, firstly, I think we need to gaze into the face of a good father. Gaze into a face of a good father. Um, I, I have this friend of mine named Dan Anderson. He's a uh, teacher at Grant High School in Portland. And when we were living in Portland, um, he had this philosophy class. He taught a bunch of different classes, but one of the classes he taught was philosophy. And they would do this thing called stump the pastor. So get this. They would study, like they would have different, you know, uh, religions that they studied and they didn't invite somebody in from those religions and all the other religions, they were so nice to them. They're like, hey, we just want to invite you to you know, hear from you and what is your religion about? Not for Christians though. So for Christians, they would study Christianity and then they'd invite a pastor and he was like, because Dan, he's, he's a Christian as well and he couldn't say anything about Jesus when he was in school but he could have a pastor represent Jesus to the students. So he would say, I want you to come up with the craziest questions you can, and you have to make this guy look foolish. Try to just make this pastor look as bad as you possibly can with your questions. And then he would invite me to come to the class, <laughs> to sit on a stool, and to, an to answer their questions. So I got like 30 very non-Christian kids sitting in front of me, and they're just hitting me with every question they can think of. I loved it, it was awesome. And so they asked me all, all sorts of questions and, I, and, and this one girl, she, she, in kind of an accusatory tone, she says, I bet 
that you think Jesus is the only way to God. And it's like, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and she's like, and I bet that you are so narrow-minded, you think everybody who doesn't accept Jesus is going straight to hell. I'm like, well, there's a little nuance there, but um, here's the deal. Most religions say this. If you want God, if you want nirvana, if you want heaven, then you need to pray in the right direction, eat the right foods, go to church, read the book, the holy book, whatever the holy book is, meditate. In other words, most religions say this. If you want God, then you have to climb the ladder to get to him. And you're just lucky that there is a ladder, that there is a way. And so I said, you know, many are comfortable with this arrangement because it reserves a certain amount of control, right? If that's what religion is, then you're in control of how much the religion is going to cost you. You're like, I don't want to be, I don't want to have like eight planets when I get to heaven. I'll settle for five. So I'm going to be nice to those people, but I'm not going to be that nice to those people. You're in control. That's the religion. I'm going to climb to this point, but no further. But, I said, you see, the story of Jesus, the story of Christmas says this. Instead of God being at the top of the ladder and saying, well, here's how you get to me, the story of Christmas is this. Jesus saying, I'm coming down the ladder to get to you. I don't have steps to me. I have one step. Will you open yourself up to my love? So, so is Jesus the only way? Is that narrow-minded? Well, he's the only God who came to you. See, love like that fills my heart with worth. My mind can barely comprehend that level of love. Love like that, it removes all of my control. He may not need anything from me, but he asks for all of me. And that's the message of Christmas. You could hear a pin drop in this classroom. Like, what? I got a letter from this gal um, a couple weeks after I'd been uh, in her class, and she said this, my parents raised me to believe that Christians were narrow, small-minded people, but you have shown me that maybe I don't understand who Jesus really is. See, many people sabotage Jesus' work in their lives because of just how extravagant his love is. It's like, what? I can't handle all of that. And many have found themselves missing Christ in order to keep some semblance of control in their lives. So they hang on to their personal righteousness. And they say, well, listen, God, I really messed up over here, and so I'm going to fast next week uh, to really get myself in, in, in the right place for you. And he's like, oh, you're going to miss me just like the Pharisees missed me. So, some people go, well, yeah, that is a crazy story that, about Jesus and all of that, but I don't know, can we really, is that really true? Because if it is, I'm going to lose all my control, and so I, I can't really, I, I don't know if it really is true. And it's like, oh, you're going to miss him just like the Sadducees missed him. Some people, they go, 
I know Jesus tells me to forgive my enemies, and I know that he wants me to love everybody. Um, I just can't. And you, they hold on to their grudges, and they're going to miss Jesus like the zealots missed him. Or, or there's some people who they just go, Jesus' love, it can't be good enough to actually transform culture. I can understand how it could affect my kids in my life, but culture, no. We need to separate, and we need to remove ourselves. And they miss Jesus, just like the Essenes. See, the love of Christ is so pervasive that it doesn't just say you need to repent of your wrongdoing, it says you need to repent of your right doing. Because even your right doing, when held between you and God, becomes a block between you and him. Jesus' love is, is so amazing. It doesn't say, you don't, you don't need to soften the gospel. It doesn't need to become more palatable for people. Just like the Israelites had 400 years of silence, we've had, there are people who have had lifetimes of silence and they're desperate for a God who can atone for them and who can turn them into a saint. You don't have to hold the grudges that you, that you hold thinking that you're controlling people, but in reality, you're only controlling yourself because Jesus' love is enough to not only cover what you've done, but if you, take it, if you really take it into yourself, oh, it'll leak out of you and it will touch everybody around you. Love like that, it, it, it calls for repentance. It says, can you see the Father's heart turn towards you? Can you see the wisdom of being righteous? Do you, in other words, do you see what's on offer? Do you see what's on offer? The wisdom, do you see the wisdom of standing in the love of God for all of your life until it makes you beautiful? It, what what's, we're being invited to through the message of, of Jesus and the message of, of John the Baptist is a life of receiving his love. That's what makes you like Jesus. So Christmas, at the very least, should turn your hearts to this Father by getting rid of all of the silly games that we play with our religion and with our political leanings. We have to let, we have to take the box that's in our hands and let go of it in order to receive our king. To end, I, I once read an old English uh, pastor, he, uh, he used this imaginary first century conversation to explain how Jesus coming into our world is something very different than any other religion. So go ahead and close your eyes, I just wanna tell you this story. I want you to imagine the first century, and I want you to imagine that a pagan neighbor runs into their Jewish neighbor as they're both walking to work. And the pagan neighbor, the Greek neighbor, says, oh, um, hey, I heard that you're now a Christian. John told me at his barbecue the other day. That's great, a new religion. I love all the nuanced ways the gods express themselves. Now the Jew then turns to his Greek neighbor and sheepishly, sheepishly replies, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty great. The Greek man then begins with this line of questioning. So, so tell me, in this new religion, where are your temples? And the new Christian replies, well, um, well, we are the temple of our God. And he says, what? Well, that's odd, very odd indeed. Um, what about your priests? <laughs> what do they do now? Where, where do your priests work? And the, the Christian replies, well, you see, Jesus is our priest and he's made all of us priests. 
What? <laughs> well, okay, then um, tell me, what do you sacrifice? Where do you do your sacrifices? And the Christian replies, well, we don't do sacrifice because Jesus is our sacrifice. The Greek takes this in and he thinks, well, what the heck kind of religion is that? The Christian man then replies, well, it's no kind of religion at all. Religion says, you do all of this stuff in order to curry favor, and if you do, you will be accepted. But Jesus says, because you are accepted, because I've come down the ladder, you do all of these things. It's a complete reversal. Do you see the love of this father? You belong. You're reconciled. Now is a time for a life of receiving Jesus' love and ruling in righteousness as a result. That's what's on offer this evening. Let's all stand.